0: Okay, guys, uh, welcome to the Control Yourself podcast. I am here uh, with my close friend, uh, Dr. Michael Chivers. And we were just discussing what we're going to discuss, um, which is not particularly well known to us at this time. Uh, but we did do one of these um, sessions a few months ago. And I believe on that session, we t- we, we focused in on the hip. And, I, and, and it was like a, a clinical anatomy review. And then we talked about management issues with regard to hip, so I suppose we'll do the same thing today, and we'll we'll try our best to to keep it um, in the upper limb, uh, insofar as we can keep it in the upper limb, um, and then we'll, we'll we'll try to do the same. So, do you have any particular area that you want to start with, Doctor Shivers, uh, or or do you want to just um, you want me to just start asking random questions?
1: Uh... I, I mean, very easily, we could probably just start at the shoulder and sort of discuss the relevant anatomy of the shoulder, uh, okay. as it pertains to certain clinical conditions, as it pertains to some of and interventions and what we're trying to do, what the intent is. Again, I think always reviewing the bioflow is a, is a great conceptual framework for people to, to understand the system as it, as it As it is right now, just because that is, I mean, that is one of our foundations of, of what we base a lot of stuff on, particularly now with, with the ISM coming out being very tissue specific from an input perspective, understanding, you know, uh, anatomical connections, understanding anatomical depths, understanding, you know, anatomical directions, understanding you know, what the anatomy is made up of, uh, I think is really valuable to kind of go over for people. And, you know, a lot of it may be a review since, since we have, you know, talked a lot about anatomy historically, but I think it's, it's always something, uh, cause we just did a spine FR and, uh, you know, I think it's, <clears throat> you might get this as well. I assume, I assume you do, but you know, when we, when we teach people, you know, what we do, uh, you know, FR, FRC, FRA, you know, I think it still is surprising to people that that's what we do. What do you mean? You, you know what I mean? Like like, like people, so I bring this up because in, 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 in the spine course, which was, which was fantastic and it was, a, it was a great bunch of people, but, you know, when I'm going through things and I'm going through like, I go through this this thing where I go, okay, well, here is, here is the framework with which I want you to think. And you know I lay it out like, okay, we have to understand the areas that, that people don't move well into. Then we have to understand next is the, is the relevance of not being able to move into that area anatomically. Like you have to know, you know, whether this, this limitation for that person is coming from some deeper anatomy, whether it's coming from superficial anatomy, because that kind of sets you up to understand where you're going to go. Right. Mm -hmm. Because we talk about this a lot. Like you, if you only have, you know, a half an hour or 60 minutes with, with a client, like you, you want to make sure that you get to, to the message first and you, you send that message crisp and clean, and then kind of work your way, way from there. And, and so, so I was talking about how, like, when, when you get to that point and you start to understand, okay, where's the limitation? And you start thinking about anatomy. Like, I, I know you, you do this as well. The first thing I do is I picture the anatomy, mm. like here is the shoulder. Okay. Like, where is everything going? What is the depth? Everybody is. Is there, but every shoulder is the same if you know what I mean like and I talk about this as well like and I think we talked about this in the last podcast that we talked uh, about this topic like they everybody's anatomy is different insofar as you know the the density of the connective tissue is different you know the size of muscle tissues are different that's just all based on their movement behaviors and what they do and don't do mm-hmm. but when you think of a shoulder, like the supraspinatus is always going to go in the same direction. Like never have we seen a supraspinatus that runs up and down mm-hmm. instead of side to side. Mm-hmm. So I think if you can get into this framework. of What you're going to engage with, it's a really valuable exercise. And people are like, well, you do that? And i like, well, of course I do that. <laughs> like, like, I think really understanding anatomy helps you figure out what, where you need to go and what some of the the findings mean in terms of what their relevance is and what their context, their context is so that you can kind of move forward. So this anatomy program, again, I I brought this up, like I review anatomy. I, I mean, I probably don't do it as much as I did, but I still review anatomy.
0: Well, I mean, you teach FR, so you review anatomy more than most humans in on the planet if that's and you're questioned about it all the time but i do see the 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 importance and and you know the lack thereof if people don't understand the anatomy but you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna pull this back and I, and I don't know if i'm backtracking to what you said but i think the reason you do that and the reason i do that has to do with the background systematic approach running in the brain when you have someone in front of you and here's what i mean um, you can easily take what you just said about knowing the anatomy and then do what a lot of therapists do where they start to pinpoint the problem. And then it becomes a, a thought uh, experiment where they're like, well, what can I do to that problem as a therapist? And mm-hmm. I, I think that idea is the underlying problem. I'll give you an example. You have a shoulder problem looks like a whatever, an impingement or a tendinopathy uh, we can get into impingements as to whether or not those are viable but a tendinopathy and then the the idea becomes there's a supraspinatus tendinopathy and now i have to think about training treatment and rehab and then it becomes what's the best exercise for a supraspinatus tendinopathy as if the exercise and rehabilitation was somehow invented for the fixing of uh, a tendon that's gone wrong I've been thinking a lot about this in the general sure. context, like, for example, exercise itself, um, exercise itself was not invented for the prevention of injury, nor for the treatment of injury. Does that make like injury yeah, course. Was really invented for the purposes of improving the performance of the anatomy? And and I think that there's something to say that it wasn't there to make you decide, you know what, I have decreased Load bearing capacity in my supraspinatus tendon. How do I increase that specific capacity specifically? It's a bad sentence. You know what I mean? And, yeah, and, of course. And that's where, okay, so we have that framework where there's ways to put it, like you're saying, there's ways to put inputs in, like getting in and out like a thief, you know, and getting the input you want within the half hour and then getting out and then giving exercise. But that there, It's not just a matter of the anatomy. It's also understanding the underlying reason or the underlying approach to the fixing of dysfunctional anatomy. So the reason I wanted to bring this up is because I know we talk about this a lot. Maybe it's worthwhile bringing up the concept of emergent behavior insofar as trying to understand the goals of how to treat a particular condition. What do I mean by that? let's go to the, the SI joint for whatever reason if you if you give me a client that has an SI joint problem uh, it's 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 a reflex for a therapist to say how do i manage an SI joint problem but i think what we do is we don't say how do i manage an SI joint problem we ask the question how do i make better emergencies in the future in the system does that make sense so, yeah, it's a difference it's a difference between pretending to understand the kinetic chain and pretending to understand how to connect the dots versus understanding that in a complex system like a human being um where you know at the level of the molecular structure there's complexity and there's interrelationships between molecules that 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 you know that number in the trillions right there's trillions of different, emergences that occur at a molecular level now you back up to the cellular level and you have a trillion more different emergences there's millions of molecules in every cell doing millions of things and I think if I could put someone into a cell for a second and you can see the amount of chaos occurring in a cell mm-hmm. and how all of these things are bouncing off each other um, with real really no, um there's no way to track these things that's the whole idea of of complex emergencies where you have too many variables in play and then you bring that out to a tissue level and then you bring that out to a articulation functional level and what you start to realize is that you don't have access to the answer you only have access to the manipulable um, um determinants of the system And I don't know if I'm going too far, but do you understand where I'm trying to get with this? So, an example would be when someone has an SI problem, that SI problem cannot be managed outside of the fact that they also have a lack of internal hip rotation and they have a lack of segmentation between L3 and L5, right? Or S and S1, meaning that it doesn't matter what you do to the SI joint. The fact is, is that that SI joint is living in a system. That doesn't allow healthy emergences of movements or healthy emergences of solutions to movement problems where and that's where I think the difference is where we're actually looking at the system understanding why the anatomy is what it is, what the actual intention of the anatomy is and then um, we're, we're, we're yelling at people to treat and train the system, not the problem that you identified.
1: Yeah, and and <clears throat> you didn't say it specifically in these words, but that that comes back to why you need to understand the anatomy.
0: Like yes. why that is yeah. that,
1: why that is a relevant framework that people should really, really know. And as I said, like one of the things that I that I I advise students of FR to do is to, to continually review that anatomy, but also like like when you're staring at a client who's you know com- some shoulder pain or discomfort or or lack of movement, you know we seem to, we, we tend to you know obviously engage with the client and but but we look at it as just a shoulder, whereas what I want what i what I try to get people to think about because again, this is what I do, and I, and I know you're the same, is that like. I put on the x-ray goggles and that so when they're describing to me like oh my shoulder hurts over here or I can't do this I'm picturing the anatomy as it's moving underneath their shirt or their skin or whatever so that I can start to visualize okay what is what is undergoing length loading what is what is undergoing regressive shortening like where is the capsule what is the capsule doing you know if they're in this position Uh, and I think that that you know, getting back to what you were just saying, that's, that's an important framework, not, not just to, to know the anatomy, but when you speak about these emergences, emergences are not things, they're behaviors that come about because of the interaction of the parts of the system. And so the parts of the system are, are the anatomy. So the behaviors of the shoulder, whether it's, you know, what we deem to be normal joint function or... or You know abnormal joint function, you have to understand that the only difference between those things is the emergent behavior of the parts of the system. Mm -hmm. And one we would deem to be more optimal because there's probably more optimal anatomy uh, sorry there's more optimal behavior of the anatomical components Mm -hmm. and over here. The only difference is because there's less than optimal behavior of the anatomical components, whether that be capsular, deep tissue uh, or, or otherwise. So <clears throat> when, we, when we really think about, and, and I, again, this is, another, this is another sort of uh, shift that we made in, in teaching FR and, and, and teaching the system is that when like we don't do things to like even even in the in the ism for example like we don't do things to the tissues getting back to your si joint example like we don't we don't even when you think anatomically it's not like oh we have to do this to this tissue to make this tissue you know feel load and get stronger like the, the beauty that we have in FR now and and the beauty that we have in the ISM is that we've really taken the anatomy and broken it down to, well, these are the anatomical components. You go anywhere in the human body uh, of the musculoskeletal system and you're only going to have these anatomical components. There's There's different uh, sizes and shapes and, and structures and functions and so on and so forth, but you're only going to have these components and, and really when really sort of thinking about the different anatomical components, whether you understand like what connective tissue is made of, or whether you understand what muscle tissue is made of really, they just have behaviors that they're supposed to output to allow the system to function appropriately. So when we put in our inputs, like like we just said, when you get in and get out, you wanna make sure that you understand what anatomy you're trying to influence, because the message you send, whether that's a directional FR load or whether that's a a, a PAILS load or whether you put that tissue on on some other loading progression, you wanna make sure that that information ultimately teaches that tissue to output a new behavior. So again, like we don't, we've gotten so granular in our understanding and trying to help others understand how to say like, you know, when, when you, when you do these, these inputs, like strength is, is a, is a, is a general term, but when you do these inputs, you want to make sure that the behavior of that tissue changes so that when it gets put back into the interaction of everything else that ultimately the behavior of the larger system will change. And that's how you effectively move, you know, someone from abnormal joint function to normal joint function above and beyond. Right. Because that's really the only difference.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah.
1: So it is the anatomy, how it's behaving because, you know, taking that a step further, how the anatomy behaves is ultimately how the nervous system learns how to behave as well, because that is the only stuff that it, it has knowledge about, right? So if the knowledge it has about the glenohumeral capsule, which is highly innervated and the rotator cuff, which is very dense with, with muscle spindles. If, if the nervous system learns to use that stuff in a particular way, that's a little less than optimal over time, that, that's gonna become you know more and more suboptimal. Mm-hmm. If we can send the message in whereby you know, we change those behaviors of those tissues, ultimately, the nervous system learns how to use them more uh, effectively.
0: You said something that I want to, I want to purse out a little bit is that because I know that I talk about that at FRCs or at the strength courses, the idea that, or we have in the past, that your brain is pretty much isolated, right? Your brain is like, it's in a, it's in a a dark, damp, you know, cap of bone, yay thick. Um, And the thing that you said where the only access points the brain has to understanding the emerging system or what's happening in the outside world are the sensations coming in, which is why we often talk about the fact that the brain grows eyeballs out of it, because, you know, almost in frustration that it can't see what the hell's going on out there. So it grows these eyeballs, right? From a musculoskeletal movement standpoint, um, a brain that doesn't have incoming information Um, is an, is an empty brain. Like it doesn't have, it doesn't have the ability to, you know, think, well, if my shoulder is doing this, then I should do this with it differently next time. It doesn't have like a, a memory system where something's running that way. It literally only is at the whim of the afferent information coming in, as you said, by these spindles or by the, um, and that's literally what it is. We often say that the nervous system grows Tissue on it, just so that it can figure out what the hell's going on outside in that environment, and and I think that's a really important way of thinking about about how the the system is functioning. yeah for sure Uh, 100% yep okay so if we, if we think about it that way, and we, we can also start talking about what's the, what's the the purpose of the system. I know we're going to get, we always go back into the weeds. we always backtrack into the weeds before we start, but it's very important to understand that the purpose of that nervous system is to create complex movements in its external environment. To the extent that I was just reading, um, I can't remember the author's name, but it was on plant intelligence. And, and, you know, the question always comes in, like, how can a plant have intelligence? if it doesn't have a functional nervous system? And then the the, the answer is, is that, well, the nervous system as we understand it from a human standpoint has a particular purpose. And, and we might um, inject purpose into our nervous system by writing poetry and falling in love and contemplating the end of the world and physics and this, but that wasn't the purpose of the system. The purpose of the system was to allow it to move into the external environment and acquire things that it desires in that external environment and if you think about it from that perspective that's why a plant wouldn't have a nervous system because it it doesn't move the time scales are way longer it it has no reason to move into the external environment now having said that there's a lot of interesting things we can talk about that for example the fact that neural cells depolarize And, and that's really why we consider the nervous system to be the communicating factor in the body, because there's a depolarization where there's a change of influx of sodium versus, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Those, um, gradient channels occur in plant cells as well, right? Where there are action potentials being permeated. It's just that the action potentials, the end uh, reason for the action potentials is not to respond with a movement. It might be to respond with, you know, shunting more nutrients to that part of the plant or one part of the plant telling the other part of the plant that there's a caterpillar eating its leaves or or whatever it is. It's just a difference of, 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 of purpose as a, as a species or as an entity. And I know that that sounds a little bit, you know, too detailed, but it really helps to understand the nervous system because then the extension from that understanding is understanding why the hell we have muscles, right? Because if we have a nervous system and the nervous system's job is to go into the environment to acquire, the only job or, of muscles or the only reason for a naturally selecting system to create muscles is to overcome the movement dilemma which arises where I want to get over there. Um, but there's this thing called gravity, which is somewhat keeping me here. And then you say, oh, so what is a muscle? A muscle is the, the way that the system figures out how to overcome the problem of gravity and proximity. How do I get there? How much energy do I have to expend to get there? And mm-hmm. I, I always think that that's the best way to understand um, how to manage the system is to understand the system's goals at the at the deepest level as to what those system's goals are. So the, the shoulder's goal is to... Allow for the movement of the humerus relative to the scapula, or you can also pull in the scapula relative to the thoracic cage, insofar as it allows your hands to experience or to move into a um a, a, a zone of opportunity in order to acquire things, if that makes sense. So yeah, I was just- yeah. <clears throat>
1: So I, I don't know what, uh, what plant stuff you've read because I, I haven't read that stuff. And plant, plants don't have a nervous system. But it's interesting because as you're talking there, you're, you're talking about uh, overcoming gravity and proximity and, and you know, how, how do I get from here to there to, to make myself better? But when you really think about it, that's what plants do as well. <clears throat> like, so when we, when we talk about, when we talk about, like, why we have the things that we have. Like it's really to engage space uh, appropriately and in, in engaging space appropriately, external space, obviously. <clears throat> we, we have better, things. well, again, I don't know a lot about plants, <clears throat> but from a basic perspective, plants grow upward, therefore taking up space, Right. There's a there's a space component to the growth of a plant. Mm-hmm. But in addition, like when you think about you know what might be considered the internal components of the plant, which would be the root system. I'm, I'm just making an analogy here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The root system also takes up space, but in a different environment. So it's it, let's say the plant X like the, the, the flowers or or whatever of the plant are external to the ground. Therefore, taking up space externally, which is highly dependent upon the growth of the internal system of the plant, which would be the root system to acquire water and nutrients and so on and so forth. So when you think about it, it doesn't have exactly the same, you know, makeup, but inherently you can break it down into very similar things
0: Fuck, now we're gonna and, and
1: what it's deep. trying to do. You know what I mean?
0: Now we're going to go even deeper because you did that. What you said just got me something now because the plant doesn't have a nervous system because it doesn't create complex adaptable movements. However, it does have a structure which is purposed to counter complex movements. For example, if you have a, a windstorm, and you see something like this is a, this is way out there, but it's it's interesting and useful. If you have a windstorm and you look at the ability for, let's say, a um, a palm tree, right, to just you know allow itself to move with the the whim of the wind, that's all based on structural integrity that would have been selected for for the purpose of countering. Complex movements occurring in the external system, yeah. right? So the reason I bring this up is because let's say that you, you know, a tree is in the wind, and one tree it bends a little too much, and a branch breaks off of it, right? You, you wouldn't, if you could somehow fix this tree so it doesn't happen in the future, you wouldn't just mend the branch. You would mend the branch, and then you would um, make the system more robust. Sure. So that in the future, it can emerge responses to force inputs that allow it to not be damaged in the future, right? Mm-hmm. But if, if you, but you also can't leave that damaged part of the of the branch because that's now a weak spot. So it, 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 I'm using this as an analogy to um, to therapists and to trainers to understand that yes, there is something to say about being very specific in your diagnosis. We often say the specificity of your diagnosis give, is equal to the specificity of the treatments, which is equal to the specificity of the results. So yes, we do have to get in and out and, and provide information to the injured tissue as to what how it should heal in time. But ultimately, with, with regards to you know that injury occurred, and now what do I do a week after when it starts to mend? What do I do two weeks after, three weeks after? How do I create prevention? It really is creating more robustness in the actual system and that's where I feel rehabilitative measures fall short because it's it's like the treatments focused on the damaged boo-boo the rehabilitations focused on on reinventing the boo-boo and then you know and that's it but there's no there's no understanding of the system emerges billions of of variables that are that are non-negotiable or you can't understand them so you have to take the system and make the system better, ultimately. Uh, and, And then forget about injury. If you just take a therapist mentality or a trainer's mentality, when you now just go into the gym and you say, well, what am I supposed to be doing? What you're supposed to be doing is increasing the robustness of the system so that it can counter whatever made up nonsense that you're putting it through. Now, what do I mean by that? you're a hunter gatherer there's a certain amount of nonsense things that you have to deal with right but if i say now i want you to become a hockey player well now i am artificially adding insult right that's a that's an artificial decision on my part to say i'm going to insult my system in a very particular way that has nothing to do with the original intention of this system
1: mm-hmm.
0: so now when you train people will say, you know, just get stronger, whatever, like, you know, you can't go wrong with strong or or blah, blah, blah. But yeah, you can, because you can make the system incredibly good at what it's doing, but if you're going to give it hockey, then you also have to understand how to give it uh, inputs to change the system, to be able to deal with hockey or wrestling or whatever. An example, Mm -hmm. um, your, your kids play hockey. One of your kids play hockey. My kids wrestle, right? So I see them wrestling and I see them like going back for wizards and I see them, their arm gets stuck in this position a lot. And in my brain, I go, holy moly. Well, even the normal human system, there is a fault line there where the anterior aspect of the shoulder capsule, Hey, now we can bring back this anatomy where the anterior aspect of this shoulder capsule is, is, um, I don't want to say loose, right? I don't want to say that there's something wrong with it. I want to say that the, the system evolved, you know, from quadrupedal to bipedal changes had to be made, but the system never said to itself, oh shit, as I'm going quadrupedal to bipedal, I have this problem where the anterior aspect of my shoulder capsule is lax. Right. Right. Ergo. If I do activities out here, I'm going to dislocate my shoulder anteriorly. This Like the system doesn't evolve towards optimal. The system evolves to deal with problems that are occurring there. And then you're mm-hmm. left with what you're left with. And we know that we're left with this shitty, you know, outpouching of anterior capsule, which allows for the dynamic movements of the shoulder, which is its intention. But it also makes it vulnerable to anterior shoulder dislocation. Right. right? So yeah. now... So there's that, 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 that knowledge. Okay. So there's a problem. So now a therapist or a a trainer might take this and go, okay, from an external perspective, I don't want it to go that way. So I'm just going to make the muscles really strong that pull it that way. It's the same thing with an ACL. Like the idea that when you damage your ACL that, you know, quad to hamstring ratio and the hamstring has to be strong because the hamstring holds onto the tibia. Well, not if it's not active, right? Like it, right. You can make that hamstring as strong as you want, but that doesn't change the way the hamstring behaves in the system. It just makes sure. it densely stronger. And then it's the job to make it function. So with the shoulder, like you were saying, you have to know, well, what is the deficit? The deficit is a connective tissue deficit. There is neurological deficit. There is you know, the idea of making your shoulder stronger, but first things first, the problem in this scenario is this capsule is not as robust as it should be to accept loads in wrestling. So now you got to say well how do I make it do that? And that's a matter of understanding the the level that you're treating or training, the 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 tissue makeup from a cellular level as well as the force profiles that that influence that tissue. And that's Correct. the specificity that I think you're you're discussing.
1: Yes. Definitely. Okay. definitely,
0: Yeah. So, and, and in that case, you have to ask yourself, well, if I'm really focused on the anterior shoulder capsule, I need an input, which speaks to the capsule. And from a treatment perspective, you're doing it the same way. So speaking to the capsule is not going to happen by doing external rotation with a red TheraBand. Like it, it just, it, it it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to the system. And just right. because you have a stronger rotator cuff, it can't overcome the need for a capsule and that's where people go wrong it's like it doesn't mean just get strong just get strong just keep going keep going so if that was the case i would never have a bodybuilding client like they would be impenetrable to anything but they're right. not they have anterior shoulder laxity and and to fix that it requires layer by layer making those tissues more robust to the acceptance of forces which can only happen if you understand the anatomy to the level that you're 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 asking. Correct. That was it. Correct.
1: <clears throat> going back to that to that specificity quote, which is you know right right back down to the to the origins of this whole system. Um, you know if, if you don't if you don't like also remember remember the the um, it's funny because I was I was going through these slides uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, again just because we had. The, the first live FR course again, since, since the pandemic took us out of commission. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was going through the, the old FR intro slides, and uh, I don't know if you remember those, but one of the, you know how there, there was those slides where like we put up those questions, right? Mm-hmm. Like here are the questions that we have to answer this weekend. And, uh, you know, there, there was like tissue specific anatomy specific stuff, but the last question was when it comes to rehabilitation now from like, like rehabilitation is a, is probably not a a great word because it implies, you know, it it has a very negative connotation. So let's just say like training to resolve injury, because that's really what it is. (laughs) But the last question is, is, re- is the success, I don't remember exactly like word for word, but is the success of rehabilitation strategies like based on like general strength and conditioning mm-hmm. or is it based on like the principles of, of specificity, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the mistake that a lot of you know practitioners make when it comes to rehabilitation again because they look at it as something different than training right they look at it with this negative connotation is that general things will suffice because mm-hmm. technically we're not training yet because this client has you know an injury x y and z to the shoulder or the elbow that we will discuss uh, as we go here but Therefore, you know, I'm going to give them general things because I don't want to hurt them or make it worse so that, you know, 6 or 8 weeks down the road, you know, they can go train again, which is the exact wrong way to look at all of this. Like what the lead up that we've been discussing here for the last, you know, half hour or whatever before we've actually gotten into the upper limb is like in our education, we want to move people away from that thing. Right, like that thinking should not exist, and the way that you you sort of reconcile that that way of thinking or like move yourself away from that way of thinking is trying to think about the anatomy of with which you are dealing a little bit more specifically. Because I think if you can get on that train, it's a lot easier to say, "Holy crap!" Like, oh, okay, I get it. Like this wrestler got stuck in this position, and so I better like make that shoulder joint capsule more robust to those positions because if they're going to continue wrestling they're going to get stuck in that position hundreds of more times right Mm -hmm. whereas like the general practitioner would say oh okay well you know your your shoulder got stuck back here like you said so we're going to restrict you to 90 degrees and below and you know we're going to only use bands uh non-body weight stuff yada 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 and unfortunately Fortunately, the anatomy is going well, like I don't really care about this because it's not the right information for me. And your nervous system cares even less because it's just gonna shut right off because it's inherently a lazy system anyway. Mm-hmm. So if you don't provide it enough information through the anatomy, the nervous system is gonna be like, okay, well, like, you know, I'll go worry about the other shoulder or everything else because this is not important to me right now. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So yeah um you know if if we kind of get into to some of the anatomy i think you know you you've spoken a lot in the past particularly at isms with respect to to shoulder rehabilitation and and you know maybe some of the limitations of shoulder rehabilitation uh first and foremost kind of what we we're talking about whereby you know i think as practitioners we have this well we don't know enough about training which is not true. Mm-hmm. And if you need to to up, up, up your about sort of understanding, you know, uh, methods of, of training and, you know, what influences what I mean, all that information is out there. So go and soak it all in because to think that therapists don't or should not be training things is like a, a major limitation in your ability to to think according to what we're discussing. So. Um, I don't know where I was going with that sp- particular point, but, but therapists have this mindset of like, well, I- I'm not going to do training type things. So again, to, to your, uh, sort of, uh, top, uh, lecture on this is they, they default to, okay, well, you know, what did I learn in my in my schooling or what is the latest article show about like EMG activation of these particular exercises and and then they just kind of have this protocol of general stuff Mm -hmm. that you know somebody comes in with anterior shoulder pain I do this general stuff somebody comes in with impingement I do this general stuff and it really gets away from the effectiveness of of what you're trying to do because As as we just said, like the anatomy, muscle tissue is muscle tissue for a reason. And it will respond to only certain things. Yes. And those things are not the same things that connective tissue will respond to.
0: Because if they were, they would have become the same thing.
1: Correct. And deep anatomy is different than superficial anatomy. Mm -hmm. And so deep anatomy will not respond to the same things and the same loading parameters for the same time frames. Or um, you know the same frequencies that superficial anatomy will respond to, and to think that all of it will just respond, and and you know maybe this is also sort of a a, a lack of of specificity even in the training world to think that all of it will respond you know to the same movement um, is ludicrous to think because. Because as you said, if, if that was the case, we would all look the same and we would all have the same tissues and, and it would all be the same stuff, which clearly it's not. So, and then the second part of that is, which we will get into, uh, as we go here, but it's funny that you, you brought this up because I never, uh, and I think this was at the first ISM we did, because I never really thought about it this way, but we have the rotational rule, which applies to the shoulder <clears throat> and inherently a lot of practitioners will default in their general programming to rotational based exercises, which is which is funny when you think about it, right? But in their say, default sorry, to those general you, rotational you, you, exercises.
0: Hold on, hold on. You 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 cut out. You mean did you just say default when rehabilitation? Is that what you were gonna when there's an injury?
1: Yeah, def, like when when rehabilitating an injury. They default to the right thing, right? Like, and we're going to get into this. They default to like what we would say is the appropriate movement for the shoulder when it becomes uh, dysfunctional or, or problematic or suboptimal, whatever word you want to use. Mm-hmm. But again, they default to it in this general way whereby, you know, what, you know, banded rotation stuff at you know, in a, in a side position here, like zero degrees of abduction is just going to target everything. Mm -hmm. It's going to strengthen the rotator cuff appropriately. It's going to capsule more robust and stiffer, which we want. And that'll carry over to, uh, you know, AC joint problems as well. And that will carry over to, you know, stabilizing the scapula on the thoracic cage. And it's just, um, again, it's when you really break it down into like the anatomical framework of what you're dealing with. Uh, it just doesn't. It doesn't make a lot of sense.
0: I, I have a few points. The first one I was going to say is to that point. Another example that we use in the low back <laughs> is if you ask someone what is the 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 course of events that occurs following low back pain with regards to structural anatomy. In other words, if if you if you give a person chronic low back pain for a period of, or you know, for or acute low back pain for a period of what what three to six months or whatever. What would the resultant changes be in the anatomy? Okay, so let's say you're deadlifting, um, you you strain yourself deadlifting, now you have an injury. Okay, so if you fast forward a few months, there's there's predictable things that we will know will occur. For example, you'll have multifidus atrophy, you'll have a loss of fast twitch fibers first, you'll have this, you'll have that. So then the resultant human being six months later has deficiency. So, but they feel better, right? So now you inject them back into deadlifting and then they explode again. And then everyone's like, I don't understand. Like, how did this happen? Well, it happened Mm -hmm. because, you know, if a normal system is is accepting the information that is a deadlift, an abnormal system does not process the information in the same way. So you can't just assume like, so now you have this person who has, you know, atrophied multifidae, and you're putting them in front of a bar and saying, pull as hard as you can, as fast as you can. But what you actually need is deep influence at a slow rate in order to specifically increase the amount of communication to the multifidae, And then you have to uh, re-grow slow twitch fibers, which would have become atrophied because those have a purpose. And then on top of that, you have to, like you're saying, you can't just assume that the system has an inherent normal that it's always trying to get back to. And I bring sure. this up again, for the lack of understanding of, of, of uh, the evolutionary system, whereby if you, if you start with the assumption that the shoulder um, evolved perfectly, then you also have the conclusion that following an injury, that there is a, an inherent desire for that shoulder to go back to the way it was before. But there is no such desire. There is no drive that Mm -hmm. that says, you know what? Spend energy to put it back to the way it was before. And that's why we say every injury leads to anatomical consequences. Whether or not you can feel them or see them or assess for them is, is irrelevant because at a molecular level or at a cellular level or at a tissue level, if you're looking in the right with the right frequency of microscopic viewing there is going to be alterations in that tissue um and you can't ignore those alterations hoping that the system will say you know what we really got to clean up our multifidus problem here because the system clearly only wants to conserve energy like it wants to absorb energy and conserve energy and that's all it does right so it's not going to be like you know what Let's spend a lot of ATP to fix up that shoulder so that it's nice so that when next time I bench press it'll be okay again. it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't know anything. I, I I make the argument that your your brain doesn't really have a set shoulder region unless the shoulder sends signal. Like if you stop moving your shoulder for ten years, you can imagine the representation of the shoulder in your cortex would be gone. So in other words, there's nothing in your brain saying, maintain this shoulder there is just what information is coming up to me and what do i do with this information and what do i send back and that's that's it there's that that, that's the system that was one thing the second thing i want to say is before right i like to anticipate people's arguments here when we talked about that anterior shoulder problem where there's laxity in the capsule we're not saying that training will shrivel up the capsule so that there's no way you get anterior shoulder dislocation what we are saying is that if you add robustness to a capsule, with robustness comes more and cleaner and clearer afference. And cleaner and clearer afference means better communication with the brain, whose task it is to defend against movements that would allow that anterior shoulder to translate forward to dislocate. So I don't want people to think that you can strengthen a capsule so much that this is not still a vulnerable vulnerable position, because that's what people would say. We're not saying that. We're saying that if you add more tissue, if you specifically signal to the anterior shoulder capsule, I want you to develop more connective tissue, what you're doing is you're increasing the representation of the anterior shoulder capsule in the cortex, which means the cortex can make more up-to-date decisions as to how to defend against anterior translation of the, the glenohumeral joint.
1: I will piggyback onto that and then we can move into some anatomy perhaps. However, what I will, what I will say is that it, it, that comes, there is, but there is a tissue specificity that we do have to consider with that. And so I agree with, with what you what you uh, articulated there 100% that you know the force that would that would drive that that humorous forward uh, you know happens really really fast so it's not like you know your your it's not a vulnerable position but but if we have someone who has you know, let's 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 make this a really easy argument. Let's say we have someone who has dislocated their shoulder anteriorly before, and we put them into where they usually would fall, which is uh, general strength and conditioning, mm-hmm. out of the position of external rotation. Yeah, right? right. And you you see this a lot as well, even in highly trained athletes. Like, you know, I, I I've seen maybe maybe not super recently, but. For sure i've seen in the past that you know overhead athletes like like throwers or or um, athletes who, who go into repeated external rotation should not be pressing and should not be overhead pressing because of the movement of the arm into this position because it's vulnerable okay yeah <clears throat> we have to understand that again when you break it down from a tissue perspective if if you know you look at that anterior shoulder capsule right now going across the humerus in an east-west direction and that direction is important because that is the direction that is going to provide this robustness to the shoulder okay if you have a shoulder capsule that is not aligned whereby the the connective tissue fibers and you know all of the stuff that makes that up are not aligned in that direction you will lose that robustness, mm-hmm. okay? Because the tissue will not be stiff enough to absorb loads past a certain percent. This is what the behavior of connective tissue is connective tissue stiffens to a greater amount as the load it is put under increases, okay? So again, if if I if you think about what a, what force would happen uh to a humorist that would drive it forward, you know, whether you're caught in some sort of, of uh jujitsu hold or you know you, you're playing a sport and you get driven in from behind, whatever the car accident, whatever the case is, there's a certain load that comes with that force. And if that load exceeds the capacity with of the connective tissue in its current state at that time, then yes, you are more vulnerable to to injury. So 100% what you're saying is true, because that loading will signal afferent information to the nervous system and so on and so forth. But when we speak about that robustness, we are speaking of the connective tissue, and that can be changed. Mm -hmm. And that change is going to be very directionally specific and it is also going to be very positionally specific which is why we have always said that in a case of an anterior shoulder dislocation or in the case of a of an athlete that goes into external rotation a lot it shouldn't be that we don't put them in those positions it should be that we gradually progress them in those positions under different loading conditions Moving from static to dynamic as a general progression, such that the behavior of the connective tissue learns about those different loading parameters and those different, you know, as we would as we would say, force profiles. You will scale in force at different velocities, at different uh, intensities, and the connective tissue will respond to that. And in the response to that. That is what ultimately creates the afferent information about position, space, uh, you know, kinesthetic awareness, how fast is this load being put into my system, so on and so forth, which is what creates that, that afferent information. In addition, what I wanted to say, because I was thinking about this the other day, I was, I was actually having a discussion with uh, a patient the other day. About the shoulder, and it kind of hit me, and I didn't articulate this to them because it it wouldn't have made a lot of sense. But we see the shoulder as like this, right? You know, this is as much as like we have. This is what you know. Obviously, we 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 perform those, we train those, we analyze those. Like that. That is obviously really really important.
0: You, you for, cut out. You cut out. So go back to you were showing the thing, and you were were you saying something about cars?
1: Yeah. So we, we have shoulder cars in our system, which is you know the ability of somebody to engage an external space, which we call the workspace of the shoulder. And, you know, obviously we want that to be, you know, commensurate with that person's demands. But in addition, like we also want to try to always keep it as big as possible because that allows us, um, you know, to to have, let's say a more functional shoulder. But that's not what the nervous system sees. And this is what hit me the other day. Mm. is the nervous system sees that right there on our screen, this really, really small space. And and like, it doesn't, it doesn't see this per se. You know what I mean? Like we see this when we observe, but when you break it down, what the nervous system sees is it sees all these little small spaces that correspond to the shoulder joint, to the Mm. AC joint. So the hip joint. So like we're talking about these, these really, really, really finite spaces that are bounded by connective tissue. And again, that just like, I was thinking about this as I was describing like cars to this client and I was like, well, this is what we do. And this is what I'm going to observe. But I was like, holy shit, like your shoulder car suck at this point in time, because what your nervous system is seeing is really, really small. Mm-hmm. compared to what it should be seeing, right? So think about it, getting back to our brain analogy uh, of like, um, you know, being in this cranium, like er, er, obviously there's, there's feedback from everything, but from joint, like your, your nervous system would see like just a dark screen with these little lights, like really, really small lights that would be your shoulders and these really, really small lights that would be your hips. And we want to try to think about making those lights for the nervous system as bright as possible mm-hmm. so that, like, it, it, it gets that information really, really quick. So that ultimately, like, things like this, from an external perspective and, you know, what we observe and analyze start to get, like, bigger and better and so on and so forth. You know, do, do, do you understand what I'm trying to talk I hope so. You? If There's I don't
0: something. understand that, that, that just... It really brought up a, a strong point, whether or not it's related. I think it is, but you're right. Like when you, if you're doing car, like, okay, so I explained you're doing cars, right? So if you're doing, so, cars- so I'm going to
1: uh, hold, uh, hold, hold your yeah, thought for one okay, second. Okay. So like the nervous system doesn't, what I'm trying to, I guess, say really simply is like the nervous system doesn't see flexion and it doesn't see abduction. And yes, yes. And it doesn't see these things. It sees just like the light of the space within which those things occur
0: mm-hmm. yep. yep Do you know what i'm saying i, I gotta drive up a uh, here let me just bring oh stand here it is
1: yeah there it is and
0: maybe i had maybe i had that
1: picture like in my subconscious or something but i, I again i as i said like when i was talking with this client last week it it really hit me about like this because we were analyzing her cars, and and she was kind of asking me like, well, "What does this mean?" And, and you know, obviously, we're we're having this discussion. I'm educating her about what we're gonna do. And and as I was talking in my mind, I'm thinking, "Holy like, mm-hmm. what I'm describing to you is is I'm describing it to you just so you understand." But that's not really mm-hmm. what's happening.
0: <laughs> yeah, like yeah, I love it because. Let's take this for example. So you just said that a car, this is, this is an image demonstrating, you know, the system from the capsule point of view, and then from the actual external environment point of view, right? So when you're doing a car, you're really demonstrating the outer, you're really mapping the outer range of possibility, right? hmm So that would be what we call the workspace right and then in that workspace there's the opportunity to move linearly into all of that space that you you drew right, and that is that really represents. um, All of the um, opportunity that you have like your workspace represents the opportunity, you have to solve movement problems the opportunity, you have to defend yourself against incoming forces, the opportunity you have to execute forces and manipulate things in your external environment. Like you can't get past this. If my, if there's something, you know, all the way up there and my, my workspace only gets to here, I cannot manipulate that thing. It's the, it's the space of opportunity, but for sure. If you, if you follow me here, when you draw that circle, if I was somehow to, to have a, if this was like a a magical marker, where when I draw, you'll, it'll see, you'll see the line that I draw your nervous system never gets feedback from that line. In other words, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Your, your, your nervous system only gets a representation of the feelings that occur on the internal stuff while you're drawing that line. Correct. Unless there is an external force pushing back on me to to activate the receptors that will define that line. I totally understand what you're saying. And it's yeah. a, it's a perfect analogy, because once again, it should take people out of the idea that this outer line is is the manipulatable object. It's not you can't you're not manipulating the outer line, you're manipulating the content. That allows the nervous system to draw the line.
1: Yes, yes.
0: I never thought yeah. about that, that. I mean, way.
1: that even that even cements what I was what I was trying to articulate even more. You're like, yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I didn't. I didn't even really think about it that way at that point. But yeah, like I think
0: that's what you did. You did. It's just another way to to articulate it. But that's what you're saying. And, and but, really, but I think that's important for people to, to really
1: like not understand, but but like hearing it in this way, yeah, again, just really it, it, it's just a different way of of conceptualizing it, but but it like all these different ways just shows you the value of of like really understanding. The capacity of of joint function for people
0: i think it's you know it's, what i mean it's worth conceptualizing the understanding the system's understanding of itself yeah i yeah. think that's the that's the major the major thing is that the system and even when we talk about ism we say train the system the way the system sees itself so how would this okay here's a great example how would this what we're talking about matter in the outside world. Well, you can take a uh let's say a CrossFitter who is dabbling in Olympic lifting, and you can say, you know, you're unable to lock out in this position. Okay. So the one perspective, let's call it the traditional perspective, is let's force your system into that position. So, how would that be done? Well, you know, go under a bar, grab it here, stretch your arm so that you can mold yourself to the position, right? What we're saying is that the reason you can't get into that position lies not in this outer line of opportunity, but mm-hmm. it lies in the deeper tissues that produce this outer line of opportunity. That's right. So Rather than rehabbing the opportunity, you should re- be rehabbing the systematic components that allow the emergence of that particular motion. That's a huge difference. I keep saying that take the research that we know, like how do, I, how do I manipulate connective tissue? How do I manipulate muscle? How do those things change? And then take that and then deposit it into the nth degree whereby the focus is the system and not the production value of the system. And that's really all we're saying. And we're like, oh, this is not scientifically viable. It's the exact same science that everyone else uses. We're just saying, yeah. Where are you focusing this knowledge, right? I, I think that was a great little tangent, to be honest with you. I, I mean, we've thought about it this way, but I can guarantee that now that you brought that up, I will, I will hopefully describe that that much better in in future seminars, right? Um, that, that's great. Let, yeah.
1: Let's put the um, let's put the shoulder back up, and we can kind of maybe.
0: Actually, get into the reason why we did this.
1: Yeah, well, at least like talk a little bit about the anatomy, <clears> throat> uh, throat> and then and then I think maybe we can get into, you know, we we mentioned already like the the general principles that people tend to fall into when managing a shoulder, and then maybe we can just get into the to the specifics, and then I mean, <clears throat> back that up with with some some evidence. So I'll, like just to start, I was I was going through. Um, I get these emails from searches that like just repeat week by week by week. I'm probably like 400 emails behind from them, but I was just, I was just, um, uh, one, of the, one of the search terms that I use is tendinopathy and tendon structure. So like every, I think I have that one bi-weekly. So every two weeks it sends me like whatever comes out on that. So so that might, was... might
0: have been, you You might have glitched out there. So what you're saying is that you have a system put in where if any research is, comes out on this topic, it, it, if, it, uh, yeah. 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 it, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It gives you a notice or whatever. Yeah, it, it must be, you know, yeah, and just so everyone else anyway, can, so I, sorry, 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 I got to interrupt you again. So if anybody's listening, if I understand what Mike was saying, I'm assuming that even though it's breaking up, we got the gist of it. And if it's yeah. not, I'm just reviewing, I'm going back and filling it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anything, Thanks for right? telling me. So anyway, I just,
1: it, that wasn't the point of this conversation, but, yeah. or at this point, but I, I was, I was looking, cause I, 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 uh, I was on the train last night getting home from work. So I was like, I'll just flip through. So the, the first one was tendonopathy, tendon structure. And one of the first articles was um, the effective, like, systematic review on the effectiveness of PRP, which is all the rage now, right? Like, we always get clients like, oh, should I do PRP? Or I had PRP and it, it didn't work. Yep. Um, the effectiveness of PRP in rotator cuff tendinopathy and rotator cuff tears. And what do you think the results were?
0: <laughs> I'm going to go with, sometimes it works. Not good, right? Not it good.
1: It, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah not good. And, and, you know, for reasons that are, you know, very relevant to this, to this conversation in that. And so, so we've been talking about rehabilitation and like how we want to try to think like more anatomically specific for, for behaviors of tissue, but just switch rehabilitation for the latest and greatest injection. And it's exactly the same.
0: Yep. Same problem. Yep.
1: It's exactly the same. Yep. So, you know, when we, when we think about, in addition to that, one of the other articles, and this is a lower limb article, was if we have a tendon issue, and this again gets, gets, like it just drives home this anatomical concept, if we have a tendon issue, now this was specifically with the Achilles. So if we have an Achilles tendinopathy, so like back in our, like we, were, we came up in the in the the alfredson uh era i'll call it with respect to tendon loading right which just then it started in the achilles and then it it, it progressed into the patellar tendon and then it progressed into like rotator cuff tendons which was which was heavy 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 high frequency eccentric loading mm-hmm. okay um now we can go back into that literature and say there's you know, a bunch of limitations on that literature, like the outcome measures were probably wrong, so on and so forth. But this specific article, this is really cool. I should maybe, I read the abstract. So I'm not pretending that I, that I read the articles, but what they were saying was, <clears throat> does loading of the Achilles to manage Achilles tendinopathy actually also change the structure of the gastroc? Because that would be an important component, right? Yeah. Like when we talk about the shoulder capsule, let's say we talk about a rotator cuff issue, which we'll talk about, which you see a lot, like rotator cuff, tendon problems, so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> is general shoulder strengthening good enough for a rotator cuff issue? Just like is uh, particular loading parameters good enough to change an Achilles tendinopathy and therefore the structure of the gastroc because you would want to do both. Mm -hmm. And the results of the study said, no, like if you load a tendon, it's not going to have carryover effects into the gastroc, meaning Mm -hmm. the architecture of the gastroc, the fiber type and uh, um, physiology is not going to change because the loading parameters are not right.
0: Love it. Yep. Yep. Right.
1: So when we get into the shoulder, and again, we think like uh, you know, let's 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 name off the top three shoulder diagnoses. Someone's gonna probably say shoulder impingement, someone's gonna say rotator cuff, tendon, whatever. We could go like put the tendon Tendin. on a continuum, it doesn't degree. matter. Yeah. Um, and let's say uh, what would be the third, like? Rotator cuff uh, Let's put, let's, let's lump that into rotator cuff tendinopathy. So what would be the third? Like, let's just call it shoulder girdle dysfunction. Like, like shoulder doesn't move very well. And scapula doesn't move very well. Sure. Right. I think those would be the top three that most people would think of. And I think, unfortunately, again, most people would train those very similarly. What Mm -hmm. we're saying is, is that those three things are completely different. Mm-hmm. And if you try to train one like the other, you're not going to have those carryover effects. So if we look at the, do you want to flip that anatomy uh, around for a second? So if we look at the, the shoulder, we had the capsule on there, which is now taken off, but <clears throat> you could see the subscapularis is on there. And the subscapularis goes in the same direction as the capsule, deep tissue, probably really important for changing capsular space, for changing robustness of the capsule, so on and so forth. If you flip this guy around, you'll see the backside of the cuff, which would be the teres and the infra, which goes in the same direction as the capsule. And you can see that these are gonna go in the opposite direction of everything superficial of the shoulder. So again, other tissues that are gonna have significant impact on you know, the ability of the nervous system to see that light of the shoulder mm-hmm. from the top side, you're going to have the supraspinatus, probably the most commonly injured tendon, uh, most common site of of rotator cuff tearing. Again, you can see that that's coming in uh, to the same uh, orientation and direction as the glenohumeral capsule. So we we have enough evidence now, anatomical evidence and histological evidence that, you know, when we look at this anatomy picture here, we, we see the difference, but there is no difference. Like those cuff tendons or capsular tissue.
0: Yes. Like if you took this and you peeled it from here to here, the undersurface of that peeling, you would not be able to distinguish how much do I peel back before I start to enter the capsule. Correct. Like there's no, there's no And you might get
1: to a point where you peel it all and you see the backside of the humerus. Yes yeah you know what i mean yeah um and so i think a couple of of important points here uh to start of this deep tissue number one that the direction of this deep tissue is always opposite to the superficial tissues so wherever you go in whatever joint you have and you know we summarize this with you know fundamental joint motion but and i think people don't don't consider the importance of that, like, and not that they don't consider the importance, but I think, I think we still have a lot of people, you know, that are involved in the system and maybe even those outside of it that think we just made that up like, oh, well, it fits into their system. So, you know, they made it up, Mm -hmm. but where did it come from? Mm -hmm. It came from a lot of the understanding that we're trying to impart, uh, in this discussion like the first component of that is anatomical, right? If the deep tissues are part of the bioflow of the capsule and they are going to register and change the tension across the, ta- the capsule, therefore changing the robustness and behavior of that capsule and they go in the opposite direction of everything else, they're probably pretty important,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? I'm showing you a good example is here. You have a rotational tissue in the subscap being yep. overlaid by a linear tissue of, in this case, the uh, the short head of the bicep, or even deeper, the the or the long head, or the tricep. I mean, or the deltoid. I mean, there's there's, yeah. Th- this is not a made up phenomenon where we say that the system evolves whereby, for every external articulation outside of the spine, the first thing you're going to find is rotational muscle. But that's not just because it's because it has to. It, it does something specifically to the capsule,
1: correct? Yes. And, and 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 getting back to what we just were talking about, like that right there where your is, is what the nervous system cares about because that's going to shine the light, right? That's going to brighten the light. It's going to dim the light. You know, whatever analogy you want to use regarding how well that shoulder is going to be able to engage external space. So I think that's important. Mm-hmm. second thing that's probably important with the cuff is we know a couple physiological things about the rotator cuff number one it's primarily slow twitch from a fiber perspective and because it's primarily slow twitch that gives us some indication of uh what it's going to do from a behavior perspective right mm-hmm. and 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 part of that is you know there's a there's a, a a repeated contraction type component of that, uh, which then leads into the fact that the reason for that is not to generate prime motion, which we all learned, right? The rotator cuff is what does this. It's not really generate that. It's to provide that ongoing feedback about the space that it is controlling dynamically, okay? Which is the sh- the shoulder joint capsule, and. The reason why it's physiologically made up of primarily slow twitch stuff is because we're gonna use our, you know, as humans, we're gonna use our shoulders all of the time. So our nervous system wants to know about the shoulder all of the time, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the second thing. So what have we gone through? That there's a large bioflow continuity between the cuff and the capsule. The direction is the same. That direction is really important because that's what's going to create the behavior of the capsule. That's what's going to create that afferent flow. Physiologically, we have rotator cuff red stuff that is made up of a certain fiber profile that is going to have a certain behavior because of those fibers, right? Mm-hmm. Now we think about training or not training, rehabilitation of the red cuff. Knowing just those simple anatomical facts, does what we currently what we currently do from a general uh rotator cuff rehabilitation perspective align with those facts? The answer is no, it doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so you know, we have uh, you know, like okay, do I I will say, and we, we said this already, one of the things that does align is the rotational input. Right again, a lot of people just fall into rotation because they think rotator cuff rotation. Mm-hmm. You see like, you know, uh, you know, always done in the same plane. You see, you know, three sets of 10, which the rotator cuff doesn't care about. Like three sets of 10 is not going to stimulate those fibers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see it done like once a day. So the frequency is not enough. So all of these things don't really align with how we change the behavior of the shoulder from a capsular perspective or of the rotator cuff if the rotator cuff was an injury of of the shoulder specifically now you get into the
0: for one second just to point out like if you just said you just pointed out about the slow twitch fiber and how that's an important component of the rotator cuff but then you're assigning three by ten and even in the Physiological standpoint of training. If you go to external model training, you realize that that time frame, if done, it puts you in the muscular hypertrophy realm for fast twitch fibers, right? Like if I was going to train slow twitch fibers, I'm going to prolong that time perspective.
1: But then from load perspective, Mm -hmm. right? You're 100 correct. So you have the time scale is more in alignment with training a different fiber profile. (laughs) yep and but you have a really low load so what is the what is the system doing with that input it's going huh yeah i don't really give a shit about this
0: yeah yeah this is just this is just this is a noise it's a noisy signal it doesn't it's not an input it's not a a, you're not signaling anything you're really providing exercise correct like yeah, you're, you're, for the, I mean, for the sake of means.
1: for the sake of providing your patient or your client with the opportunity to do something that you know they think is of value, when really it's providing no value other than just sucking resources from an already system that's compromised.
0: Brilliant. Yep. Yep. I'm sorry. I think I interrupted you. Right? you. You were on so, a so
1: um, so. Yeah. No, that's okay. So I was just gonna. I was just gonna go into. Um, the tendon. So the tendon is white stuff. So mm-hmm. again, now we have to switch our thinking uh, a little bit. And these could be in the same. This could be with the same client who has a like a rotator cuff tendinopathy. Uh, oh, sorry. There was one last point that I was going to make with respect to the fiber type uh, and the the fiber profile of the cuff. <clears throat> we have a lot of evidence, and a lot of this evidence is on. Uh MRI imaging, uh which shows that if the rotator cuff becomes problematic because it doesn't have the behavior that it's supposed to have, it undergoes fatty infiltration. So it atrophies. And what does the system what is the the human system do? It goes, oh well again, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not really getting any information should be doing something and this kind of gets back into your your point about um um, like there isn't a norm that the system has it just it just starts to think that it it has to deposit something Mm -hmm. so what it does is it just deposits you know adipocytes which is part of connective tissue Mm -hmm. um and so you get fatty infiltration of the rotator cuff now i think it goes without saying that adipocytes are non-contractile So therefore, they're not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. And therefore, your nervous system is not going to become aware of that tissue because now it's just fatty. Um, And this is a general response. I, I shouldn't say that. It's a fairly specific response to a tissue that has lost its ability to behave as it should behave. So we see this in the multifidus. We see this in a lot of deep tissues where they will atrophy and become infiltrated with fat. So again, it just kind of shows that we have to start thinking anatomically. So from an anatomical perspective, what we want to try to do is we want to try to send the signal to the rotator cuff, whatever rotator cuff it is, name one of four or all of them to behave like a rotator cuff should, which is not prime movement. It is to create tension, to create uh, a little bit of force across the shoulder So and do it for long periods of time in different positions so that the nervous system starts to become uh, aware of, of the shoulder. Now, when we move into like a rotator cuff tendinopathy, uh, which let's say is, is diagnosis number two within... The rotator cuff well now you're talking about something different so now it could be all of the stuff that we just said plus because now you're dealing with white tissue that is supposed to be stiff and it's supposed to be stiff under different amounts of force under different velocities of force so now you have to start thinking about what is this shoulder supposed to be doing like is this a is this a high performing overhead athlete shoulder well the training of that tendon should uh be in alignment with what that shoulder is going to be do, doing down the road is this a, an overhead worker well that's a different force profile so your your rehabilitation of that tendon should be in alignment with what that shoulder is going to do we can't just say well heavy load eccentrics because that's what what the protocol is you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. um so there's some specificity on, in understanding like where we want that stiffness because again what what is that stiffness doing it's creating robustness across a certain part of that capsule like the teres and the infra would be on the posterior side the the, the uh, subscap would be on the anterior side, and your supra would be on the anterior superior side, depending upon where you want that stiffness mm-hmm. you know you would train the tendon uh, accordingly uh, and and so again, there's some specificity with which uh, we have to understand the shoulder it's not just well let's let's train. Rotation and what do we call this again? Uh, empty can maneuvers, uh, you know, with bands to try to target all of that. Because you know, bands might be a uh, a starting point to some extent, but if you're not changing the the velocity of the contraction or you're not changing the intensity of the contraction in certain positions, then again, your tendon is going to go. Okay, well, yeah, I don't I don't really care. I, weird. You it's know, like,
0: like you. We yelled at the. A training community isn't specific enough but in that regard it's they're more specific than the rehabilitative community it's like a lot high level trainers that train athletes understand like you have to develop an ability to output strength and then you have to focus in on the particular speed profiles that match the athletes. And then you have to train those profiles, et cetera, et cetera, in order to get different in order to build different qualities of tissue so that you can perform differently. And from what you're saying, now that I'm thinking about it, it's like, when we go into therapy mode and rehab mode, not only is it not specific enough, but any indication of specificity almost goes out the window other than the prevention of the position that you got injured in, in which case they're specifically trying to avoid that. Like, Mm -hmm. like like you're right. Like if you give, if you give me a three sets of 10 external rotation with a red theraband here, we can specifically tell you the signal that's going into the tissue and you can somewhat understand how that signal is being received. And nobody would argue, for example, that if I wanted to make your bicep stronger, like if I wanted to actually add hypertrophy into the red stuff of your bicep, that a red theraband with three sets of ten, n- no one would argue in the training world that that would provide the stimulus you're looking for, because really you're you're not like your body gets used to you know a baseline, and three sets of ten with the red theraband is pretty much at that baseline. Like it doesn't it doesn't push the envelope or force anything to happen, right? And we understand that from a training perspective, but from a treatment perspective, it's like we lose that. And we just default to three sets of 10 seems to be the nice package that we provide to people when they need to rehabilitate. Guess what? Three sets of 10 is also done if you go sprain your ankle, right? Right. It's three sets of 10. And the the problem is is
1: that three sets of of 10 with the red TheraBand is done in week one. And that's the same thing that's being done in week six.
0: Yep. Same thing with low back. You know, you're doing cat camels today. Guess what you're doing six months from now? Cat camels, bird dogs, same thing. So,
1: so specifically, like one of the things that, that I've been implementing it is like telling clients, like regardless of the, of, of the input, like I use this PR, I use this PR concept. So like we often associate PRs in the training world with you know, I lifted more this week than I did last week. And this okay. is my current max, yep. but in the rehab world, like we want our clients to be setting PRs every session. Yes. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes. But not necessarily in the maximal strength way, mm-hmm. because the inputs are going to be different. So for example, if we're, if we're going to go back to like, let's take a really, really simple example. Uh, uh, rotator cuff. Uh, tendinopathy atrophy of of infraspinatus supraspinatus you know where would we potentially start well you know if that if this is a a client who hasn't used their shoulder well in a long time you might just isoramp those tissues mm-hmm. so you might say okay uh what i want is i want you to f- like feel my finger I want you to try to contract right under my finger very, very slowly and spill that contraction out so that you push my finger out of that supraspinatus, whatever the case is. Okay. And let's say you start at that, that client can do it for 10 seconds. Like they shouldn't be doing 10 seconds the next week. Mm-hmm. They should, they should be pushing that. Yeah. Right. Like yep. you want them to right now your PR is 10 seconds, but mm-hmm. by the time I see you next session that I want that at 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. Yep. right uh so this this concept of like in the rehab world i think we should be striving to give our clients pr like push something every session whether that's time whether that's uh um you know the amount of resistance on a band whether that's uh like moving from a two pound dumbbell to a, like a three pound dumbbell, whatever. I don't know. I'm making up these examples. But but not
0: because it's protocol, but because the system actually requires the new stimulus. That's another important point. Cause you can say, yeah, I do red TheraBand for two weeks. And then I move it up to whatever the colors are green for the next two weeks, which is again, it's you're missing the point.
1: Agreed hundred percent. But what I, what we're trying to 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 say to, to to people is that if 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 the rehab if the rehabilitation because again the default is to just fall into this general model if the rehabilitation that you're doing in week one, sorry, in week two is the same as week one and in week three it's the same as week one and week f- it, like you're not doing anything, mm-hmm. you're not changing in a, in a way that the system is going to learn new behaviors that it ultimately can output from a from a, a movement perspective and like right. we see this a lot here in at, at, at the at the move lab clinic because you know oftentimes we see clients that are like at their wits end they've been other places they've been everywhere else and that same you know rotator cuff toninopathy that they saw someone with two years ago is still a problem so um You know, it's, it's unfortunately still happening. It's still the norm. And, and, you know, why we're having this discussion is to try to get people to think a little bit more critically, uh, not from an evidence perspective, because all the information you need is like right in front of you, Mm -hmm. but from a, like, like really just understand what the tissue is, where the behavior is lacking and try to understand how you're going to change that behavior.
0: I, I mean, we can, man. Every time we try to talk about one thing, we get thrown off into a tangent and they were all brilliant tangents. So, I I mean, this is a necessary conversation, but just for the sake of pulling this back, how about I do this for a little bit? I'm going to point to anatomy and then you maybe talk about what, you know, you know, why that structure is important. Why is it ignored? When is it useful? Uh, You know what I mean? I'll I'll just, we'll see if we can, uh, we can play a little bit more specifically on the anatomy. Does that make sense? yeah sure. okay, so I'm going to point to something go
1: subclavius. yeah so again I, I think I think this would be an anatomical tissue that most people would not consider mm-hmm. uh, just because of its depth and its uh, you know the general i guess uh, lack of, of knowledge about this specific tissue, but let's, let's look at it from an anatomical perspective. Uh, if you don't mind flipping the, uh, the thing back around, uh, okay. to the front side from the front view. So if you just l- consider this tissue anatomical, okay. In FR upper limb, how do we get to this tissue? We have to layer So first things first, it's at depth. Anything that's at depth, lights, like things should be spinning in our heads because if it's at depth to us, it's important for some articular function. Mm -hmm. Okay? So that's the first thing. Number two thing is the direction of this tissue, which goes in not a north-south direction, uh, as other things superficially do, but more in a direction that is going to create a flow of, of connected in terms of the AC joint and then kind of meshing into the Glenohumeral joint as well on the lateral side and then on the medial side, you know, creating a flow into the SC joint first rib, like upper chest region. The second thing we have to consider anatomically is that it's under the clavicle and the clavicle is the only major linkage that we have that allows the shoulder as a girdle to function like in space, okay?
0: So again, let me just let me just not. stop there. Just I want to I want to emphasize that for people who might not know what Dr. Chivers is saying is that really that SC joint by way of the clavicle is the only thing that is structurally holding the shoulder girdle, being the glenohumeral joint and scapulothoracic um, interface. It's the only thing that is holding it to the body structure proper. Yes. Okay.
1: Now. If you look at the fiber orientation of both the AC joint and the SC joint, they both align well with the deep tissue orientation of the subclavius. So uh, that also speaks to the anatomy. Mm -hmm. Now let's look at this from a fundamental movement perspective. What is the fundamental movement of the clavicle that allows us to engage space out here? Rotation. Mm -hmm. It's rotation. So the only way that your shoulder is able to rotate appropriately, when I say shoulder, I mean glenohumeral joint, and uh, is it going to rotate effectively in the upper regions of the workspace. And the only way that your scapula is going to get into some element of rotation and elevation to allow you to work in these upper regions of the workspace is a good functioning clavicle, which means that The function of the AC joint and the SC joint linkage between them being the subclavius has good quality anatomy, has good anatomical behaviors of allowing for rotation of, of that clavicle. And I think this is one that's often missed. You know, if we go to our third diagnosis there, like again, kind of lump them into, into, uh, uh, cuff problems, impingement issues, and then like general scapulothoracic shoulder issues, like uh, you know what people would generally call like wing like, scapula or an inability of the scapula to move, yada yada. Uh, you know the, the clavicle is often missed in in mm-hmm. that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereby people like to focus on you know Y's and T's and W's and M's and N's and O's and whatever of the scapula but they forget that the depth of anatomy that is allowing for that to occur uh, part of that is the subclavius
0: and then i guess you can some people would would start to argue that how can you point to the subclavius as being a problem or you know because really the diagnosis if you look up like common muscular diagnoses in manual therapy it's like bicep you know the, the the things you can see, like you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But take someone who has um, postural dispositions due to work, whereby that clavicle is held in a lower position that, and and anteriorly, you know, it's kept in an anterior position. Whether or not you're like this for a long period of time, you know, your body molds to what your your behaviors are. And if that's the case, all of that anterior connective tissue deep to the pectoralis will mold to the position you keep it in which means that the extensibility of that tissue will be limited which means the information ability from the subscapularis will also be limited which means the representation of the subscapularis and its ability to lengthen or shorten in the cortex will be limited which means the brightness of the understanding of the subscapularis will be diminished and now you have a problem where when you raise your arm there is no way to monitor the speed or the rate of clavicular rotation that will allow you to go from 90 up to 180. And, and that's that's huge. And I mean, we do this a lot where we're like, as a therapist, try to appreciate that. Get your fingers, tuck them behind your clavicle, and then get the person to lift their arm. And you're gonna see that there's you know, there's somewhat of a pressure that's being felt in your finger. You know, if I put my, if I go like that, give you my scapula, I put my finger here. As I I lift my arm, I feel pressure, pressure. And then eventually my finger gets popped out. That's Mm -hmm. because at that 90 degrees, there is your subclavius is holding on and you get a a, a real rotation of your clavicle. And that's the only way to bring your arm up. So if I go side by side, if you're a therapist right now, your physio take your next shoulder case, probably this will be a finding because in time dysfunction tends to start to patternize. So you might find someone that has, you know, rotator cuff, this or super spinatus this, or blah, 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 blah. When you check side to side, you know, either this one won't rotate or it'll rotate too quickly, or it'll let you'll see a difference side to side. And I think the major thing here is to understand that difference and to realize that that difference is, demonstrating a behavioral quality that you want to try to make right. And in order to do that, it might be specifically putting in treatments into the connective tissue milieu that encapsulates all this stuff. And this is where, you know, we, we talk about the specificity of signal and, you know, soft tissue naysayers, you know, you can look at this and just say, yeah, stretch your pec. Right. Right. But, but no stretching your pec if you if you can imagine that this pectoralis major or sorry that this subscapular or uh, subclavius along with the connective tissue that fills in this gap is is shrink-wrapped or it's it's altered stretching your superficial pec will not change the internal assemblage of that subscap or that subclavius right mm-hmm. it, it doesn't it doesn't work that way it's like saying stretch your low back in order to stretch your facet capsules well no if you can't segment your facet capsules you can do whatever stretch on the outside it doesn't mean same reason why wearing a weight belt is not going to fix your low back problem because just because the outside is held strong it doesn't change how the inside is functioning right so and there 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 lies an opportunity to to make an actual change and to look at how that, that clavicle rotates. Yeah. Right. All
1: right. I think little I little think little. the next one that I think is valuable to 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 speak about would maybe be the interface between. I mean, we can't we can't elevate. They say the it again because in you, this, you cut out uh, anatomy the program. The, inter- the interface between subscap and serratus.
0: All right, love it. Uh,
1: again, an, uh, another one that I think uh, is important. You know, just again, from an, from an anatomical perspective. Okay. So let's,
0: let me give the context and then you can speak about the, the reason why it's important. If we have here the undersurface of the scapula, I'm, I'm, I'm showing the serratus anterior, which is this digitized, uh, let me remove this, uh, so remove pec minor. So it's this interdigitation of musculature that arises from the medial internal or deep border of the scapula and then wraps around the rib cage to interdigitate with each of the ribs, the top, the, the eight ribs, okay? Now, if we look at now, you're also saying the other thing we want to discuss is the subscapularis, which would be this muscle here. The subscapularis also, it's hard to demonstrate, is going to go, actually, I'll take serratus anterior and I'll hide it, you see, the subscapularis also goes to insert on the medial border of that scapula. So now, if I look at it from this perspective, here's subscap, I'm going to add back the serratus. And now you see that it's hard to see, but the serratus, and oh, here's a good the serratus and the yep. subscap come together to form a point on the Medial border of the in, the interior border of the scapula, so I'll start you there. So there's like a there's like a relationship between them.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, again, this this is um, a non synovial joint that isn't bounded by capsular tissue per se in the truest extent of capsular tissue.
0: You said but, the scapulothoracic <clears throat> joints for the people who didn't who missed that because it fa- it went out. The scapulothoracic joint is not a traditional synovial joint as is the shoulder joint, for example. Right.
1: So as we saw in the shoulder joint, it's bounded by white connective tissue. This is not a joint that's bounded that way. Mm -hmm. It's bounded by these two tissues. So again, let's let's think anatomically here about why this is important. So let's pick the subscapularis first, kind of talked about it already. But it is going in the same direction as the glenohumeral capsule. Okay, so it comes from the front side of the, of the scapula, becomes very, very white, interdigitates with a lot of the bioflow that is white on the front of the shoulder joint. Uh, uh, interface issues, so let's say capsular issues of the scapulothoracic joint or the movement relative between the serratus and the subscapularis is going to have an impact on the glenohumeral for sure okay mm-hmm. if we look at the serratus you can see the fiber orientation of the serratus again when you think of you know uh, the superficial tissues around the shoulder superficial tissues on the rib cage this is the only one that's going to go in a different direction <clears throat> and that's important Mm-hmm. right? And what is that direction? That direction is an east-west direction, not a north-south direction that aligns well with the capsular orientation of the, uh, thoracic joint. It aligns well with the orientation of the subscapularis. So any, any movement-related issues, and when I say movement-related issues, I'm talking specifically about the tissues and their ability to move relative to each other is going to have an impact also on the movement of the scapula. And I think this is one area of anatomy that maybe gets lost in the translation of of scapula issues, because again, it's not a, a, a synovial joint in the truest sense, but a lot of times when we try to rehabilitate scapular movement issues, uh, however you want to define those, a lot of our general strength and conditioning targets the superficial tissues, the trapezius, uh, the lat, uh, Mm -hmm. uh,
0: those two primarily, I suppose. Which, by the way, there would be running in opposite direction, almost perpendicular, to the orientation of They're going programs. in
1: the direction of this capsular interface. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so again, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not poking fun or, 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 you know, at, at what we, what we do. Um, I just think that when you, when you start to think a little bit more critically about the anatomy, I think now it makes a lot of sense when we say like, okay, well just, you know, do your, your Y exercises because I'm going to try to influence the lower trapezius' impact on the scapula. Again, that message is one of you know holding the in a certain position uh, to try to strengthen a tissue that we think has an impact on this when realistically uh, most scapular issues are issues of movement. Right where we Mm -hmm. want to try to create again, we want to try to turn up the lights uh, within that tissue interface so that the nervous system starts to become aware of where that scapula is in space and how what is the 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 zones of movement with which that scapula um, uh, moves on the thorax and so I think again anatomically we have to start thinking about like deeper tissues. This this program does not do justice, but we've done cadaver dissections. Like when you get down to this level, you, you barely see red. Like mm-hmm. it's just purely white. Mm-hmm. Like there's just a lot of tissue in there. And so influencing that tissue and the behavior of that tissue, you know, from a, an anatomical direction and depth perspective, I think goes a long way to restoring what would otherwise be known as, you know, scapular dysfunction.
0: Well, look at the way that scapular dysfunction was um, was looked at by outcome measure, whereby you'll remember from school where there was people talking about measuring the distance between the medial border of the scapula and the spinous pro- processes, whereby training Y's, I's, and T's were somehow going to shorten the muscle in such a way to pull the scapula closer to the spinous process, which is It's the exact opposite. So what you just said was this tissue systems job is to allow that scapula to move on that thoracic cage in a variety of different directions. But the rehabilitative concept was to completely override that initial function and say, no, no, I need your scapula to be held back in place. Right. Which, is okay, here's another example. And and maybe we can get into a baseball example here, here. You give me someone who has traditionally kept themselves in an anterior kind of forward postural position uh, for a long period of time. And I'll show you someone who has an inability to retract that scapula when asked. Now, the problem that is, is that people go, oh, you see, there's an anterior posture of the scapula that somehow has to be corrected. But no, it's not a static. This is not a static conversation. It's not that the scapula is stuck in a position, it's that the scapula is not allowed to move into certain areas, which will allow it to take tension off of the areas that get injured. So you give me a person who doesn't have the ability to retract very well, and you get them to throw a baseball repeatedly such that their scapula is always forward, it doesn't have that retraction, you're preloading the anterior stuff. And mm-hmm. then you go to throw a baseball thousands of times, and that shoulder just explodes forward. Well, of course it explodes forward. It has no variability to move backwards. But that's not a right. postural problem as much as It's a lack of capacity to move into zones that would allow you to deal with um, force inputs over time. Does that does that does that make sense? Hundred percent. Yeah. Hundred percent. So that's a great. That's a great. Uh, And then again, I always go back to the soft tissue naysayers, but it is something to say that in that example, when that person is used to functioning here, right, you're used to functioning in these positions, the amount of relative tissue motion in time that occurs between the subscapularis and the serratus goes down. And if you take any part of the body and you allow it to stagnate in position, what you are going to see is the growth of um, tissue that that reinforces that stagnation. So the concept that this serratus and this uh, subscap will somehow be stuck together. I mean, I hate to use the word stuck together because then people, you know, was that an adhesion? No, but if you keep two tissues like this for 10 years, for the vast majority of time, the connective tissue components will change to... Um, to solidify this position so that concept of trying to peel those apart and trying to get your finger in here and try to manipulate the subscap relative to the thoracic cage is not a you know people it's a basic concept of you know whether there are adhesions in there no they're not called adhesions when you're speaking science when you're speaking science it's called you know connective tissue doing what you're telling it to do Mm -hmm. so this is not a this is not a does this happen or does this not happen? It 100% happens. Take anybody who's kept in a position for a long period of time, and then you remove the the barrier. And then what happens? They're they're kept in that position, right? So that is indeed an incredibly important interface that a soft tissue therapist who is specific in his or her inputs can address.
1: 100%. Love it.
0: 100%. All right. How much time do we have for a few more? Uh, we got three minutes, three minutes. I'll give you one <laughs> more. Let's see if we can do one more. Um, if I point to, I love this one. I'm going to get, I'm going to do this one and maybe I'll just go this one. Okay. This, the problem that I see with this one specifically, Terry's minor is number one. The palpation of Terry's minor is all over the place. We're not even going to get to that, but the feeling of pain when you palpate a Terry's minor and automatically
1: I, I should I should say, gonna say every everything that we are talking about, like even the serratus and the subscapularis, is 100 percent palpable.
0: Oh yeah, 100 percent Oh yeah. Yeah, Let's just, just
1: so it. everybody knows. Like we're yeah. when we talk about like anything that we're talking about here, yeah. we can put our hands on. So, yeah. Go no ahead.
0: matter what people want to say, there is a way to get to the undersurface of the clavicle by way of layering which would allow you to influence the under, I'm not saying that you can flick the sub this, um, of course. Subscapularis, but it is, it is accessible. So getting back to this, so this m- muscle becomes the diagnosis far too often where what it really is, is just a response to another diagnosis that indicates dysfunction of the shoulder. And there's, Muscles like this everywhere you go. So, in other words, if I'm palpating someone's shoulder girdle trying to figure out what's going on, I'm going to find tenderness in the teres minor with a long standing supraspidatus tendinopathy, with a long standing uh, proximal triceps problem, or a long standing bicep problem, or a um, swollen uh, bursa. I'm going to find tenderness here every time. Why? Because if you look at this and think about it once again from an evolutionary standpoint, there is no such thing as a teres minor. It's just all of this tissue, right, is the stuff that represents the the muscles that grow on the capsule, right? So this teres minor, it looks like something completely different from the capsule. They actually have space in between it. But that's not real. The undersurface of the teres minor is the capsule, so when this becomes problematic, it's likely because there's something going on whereby the space between the humeral head and the, and the, and the sca- um, scapula, the, the amount of space or when you use the space, it's reg- the space is registering a problem in the central nervous system, who then responds by increasing motor output to the deepest stuff to try to change the capsular problem that it or the space problem that it's it's feeling. So what happens? You get more efferent input into the teres minor, which causes more contraction for longer periods of time, which causes blood stagnation, which causes problem with oxygen um, perfusion between the, 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 the vessels and the tissue, which causes fatty infiltration, or which causes a bunch of sensitization. Of the of the and then you have a thing where you touch that muscle and the person goes, Oh my god, it hurts. And then they go, Oh, you have a teres minor mm-hmm, mm-hmm. tendinopathy, which what what are we really talking about here? Tend ter- really a tear. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that ter- it doesn't make any sense. It's like when you what's oh, another good example is when you when you push someone right here, right? When you're palpating you palp- on their back and you push right here, and the person goes, Oh, that hurts. And everyone goes, Oh, that's your QL. Like hell, it's your QL, mm-hmm. it's your fucking kidney. Kidneys hurt. You push into kidneys. Guess what? They hurt. You know, you push into the suboccipital group or the imaginary spot that people think is the levator scapula origin when it's really not. You push into there and they go, oh my God, that hurts. It hurts in everybody. I mean, that's just a, it's a sensitive area that is, that is reading a problem in the system. But don't confuse a a palpable ouchie of the teres minor with a diagnosis because that is not a diagnosis. And, and you said something important there. <clears throat> why,
1: why would something like a teres minor in, in the shoulder specifically become this way? <clears throat> because of
0: its depth and proximity to the capsule. Exactly. Right? It's, it, it just demonstrates what we've been saying, where this, this space, which is bounded by the capsule, which is the most important outcome measure for the brain it's getting something it's there's something wrong with that signal and now the brain goes shit what do i do and and it starts to and usually it's going to go to the muscles which are deepest and it's going to start there popliteus in the Mm -hmm. knee give me a knee problem and i will give you a knee who has a dysfunctional popliteus not because the popliteus was torn or bruised or injured it's because the popliteus is now the body is reading things wrong now everything's fucked up so everything's Sup- fucked up. Supinator at the elbow, same thing. Supinator at the elbow, same thing. Show me a person. Give me a, give me a, give me a,
1: give me a case of, of tennis elbow that doesn't have a dysfunctional supinator,
0: or doesn't have pain on palpation in the supinator. I've never seen this case. I, I've never seen this case. Suboccipital group is another one. It's just, yeah. I, I mean, that's a, that's a that, that's a clinical gold right there. Just to understand that what what how is that clinical gold to a therapist? Understand that when you have pinpoint tenderness. On a teres on a minor that causes a jump sign. Oh, that hurts! You should be thinking to yourself, man, there's either a very specific injury to the teres minor, or the teres minor is signaling a long-standing behavioral change. Um, that is that is telling me that there's something really wrong with the the function of the shoulder.
1: Hundred percent agree with that.
0: All right, I know. And on that note, that,
1: I got to go manage some
0: shoulders. You go manage some shoulders. This was a. Uh, it's funny the ones that we don't think are going to be good this was so informative i'm sure i'm hopefully for everyone listening but for me because every time we talk about it um there's just different ways to to conceptualize the same the same problem with the way we look at things so this was really enlightening i I enjoyed this talk very much yeah it was great
1: it was a great conversation for sure 100 all
0: right my friend you go and uh, fix the world one shoulder at a time and we'll do this again soon all right talk to you okay bye now bye